Welcome to the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Anna Moore, Sustainability Consulting and Partnerships Manager at Eco Business. And this week, we are talking about the vital topic of the transition to the circular economy and the recycling systems that will support that move. With the waste products in landfill estimated at over 50 billion US dollars, as well as the economic, environmental and social costs of sourcing virgin resources for manufacturing purposes, the move away from the linear economy is now. I'm joined by this week's guest to discuss the circular economy value chain and what is needed to close the gaps in our current economic model in order to meet the climate targets set globally. Our guest this week is Clarissa Murawski, the CEO and co-founder at Reloop. Clarissa has over 25 years experience in analytical and scientific waste minimization policy implementation and operation models. Clarissa, it is a pleasure to have you here with us today. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about Reloop? Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. So Reloop is a international platform. We're actually a not-for-profit registered in Brussels since 2015. And back in 2020, we created Reloop Americas, which is a 501c3 and a 501c4 based in America. So we're, we're growing um, on a regular basis, it seems. We were created Um, I was a co-founder with three others, and we were created with the understanding that the best way to move to a circular economy is by getting decision makers to legislate fair, level playing field uh, legislation that can help businesses shift to a circular economy. And the most effective way of doing that is to be able to go to decision makers with the science, with the environmental community, with the business community, with the government community as a coalition to explain to decision makers what the right path forward is from a legislative perspective. And bringing a coalition of business and environmentalists and government is a very powerful way of making change. And that's what Reloop is about. So we bring to the discussion both the information and the science. We are able to connect the value chain and the people that legislators wanna hear from all together. And then we hope ultimately to inspire legislators to make the right decisions uh, so that we can move forward. So we have four founding members, myself, someone from the business sector, government and environmental leadership. And Uh, It's been a very interesting journey so far. We've had a lot of success and we hope to continue that now. We're going to start to move towards Asia um, and that part of the world and hope to have an impact there as well. Fantastic, Clarissa. It sounds like you're doing some really great work. Uh, Could you tell me a little bit about the science of the circular economy that you mentioned there? Yeah, well, this really comes up because uh, certainly from my perspective, I've been in this business for you know 25 years analyzing numbers. And one of the things that's become quite clear to me is that one of the great barriers with policymakers is that they don't have a good understanding of the science because the science looks complex and difficult to understand. And often they're being lobbied by certain vested interests that provide them with one look at the science, but not a more holistic look at the science. So One of the things that I feel is incredibly important and is really the key to our success is by communicating the science in a way that is easy to understand and providing politicians with the science, 
the source material, the easy explanations so that they can really piece it together in a way that is meaningful to them so that they can understand everything they need to know, whether it's from an emissions perspective, a tons to landfill perspective, a circular economy perspective, you name it, give them the science so they really understand it. And what my experience has taught me is that when a politician or a policy advisor to that politician actually understands the numbers, understands how to look at the situation from a more scientific and practical way, they will make the right decisions because they understand it more clearly. Such a fascinating way of looking at it. And I love the idea of bringing coalitions together. I'm just wondering, you know, it'd be great to hear you describe the current waste management structures that are in place globally and why moving away from the take, make, dispose linear economy mentality really matters. So from a global perspective, it's very different across the planet. Um, there's the global north and the global south. Let's just say that there's a pretty clear difference there. In the global north, we have uh, much more consumption. Uh, we have a little bit of recycling, a little bit of reuse, but we still have a long way to go. In the global south, the situation is far worse because we simply don't even have the infrastructure in place to collect all of the waste that is currently being um, generated in those countries. And it, to some degree, it's a lot more challenging. The waste is a lot more challenging. So across the planet, we have a situation where we have increasing waste per capita. Um, the waste is more difficult to handle than it used to be for a variety of reasons. And we still have a situation where it's ultimately the community or the municipality that bears the share of that burden, the, the bulk of the share of that burden. So when we talk about circular economy, it's a new paradigm that is actually far more challenging than our current linear economy. And the, the challenge is that with the linear economy, it's about the materials flowing one way. It goes from owner to owner, passing it on, contractual agreements between the material supplier and the manufacturer, the manufacturer and the brand owner, the brand owner and the consumer, the consumer and the municipality, because the municipality now has to get rid of the waste. So it's very much a problem that's pushed to the end of the pipe, to the consumer and ultimately their municipality or community that has to manage those discards, which are usually, typically, unfortunately, incinerated, landfilled, or lost in the natural environment. And those lost resources ultimately need to be replaced with virgin resources, which require extracting more oil, mining more metals, cutting down more trees. So the whole thing is a very, very uh, highly polluting, difficult situation, both at the back end and a pipe for communities, but also at the front end, because we're having to replace those lost resources with more virgin resources. The circular economy necessitates that the entire value chain be coordinated and participate in their own way in supporting the circularity of whatever it is that we're talking about, a plastic bottle, a computer, a tire, whatever that waste is. And practically, it means that packaging suppliers and recyclers that are far away from each other in the value chain have to be talking to each other and have to have a regular opportunity to touch base because it's important that the recycler 
is communicating with the packaging supplier in terms of what makes the packaging recyclable and how to make their packaging more recyclable. And ultimately, in a perfect circular economy, the old packaging that is well-designed could literally be shipped back to the packaging manufacturer to be made into new packaging, but it has there's a communication there so that whatever the packaging manufacturer is getting back is exactly what they need in terms of feedstock to put into new packaging. So it's really about communicating in the entire with the entire value chain and not just that sort of step-by-step approach. And that's why it's way more challenging because you've got to bring everybody to the table and create a new circle or create a new circle from what was once a line, a linear line. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's a hugely complex and difficult situation. And I'm just interested in what you mentioned about Global North and Global South. What are your thoughts on the waste that is sent from what you call the Global North to the Global South in order for the high consumption rates of developed nations to deal with their waste? Well, obviously, that is very unfair. Um, and I, there have definitely been uh, quite a few initiatives most more recently to stop that from occurring. Um, you've probably heard that China basically in 2018 banned the import of waste plastics in an effort to clean up the country because they've basically been a dumping ground for waste plastics. And I'm not just talking about packaging, I'm t- talking about you know, electronics and all of the plastics and the casing. I mean, you can go to some parts of China and there are mountains and mountains of waste plastics that have absolutely no uh, end use because they're contaminated or they're designed in a way that they're unrecyclable. Um, But we're starting to see that end. We're starting to see uh, countries or regions of countries like the EU, say there will be no more of this. We are no longer going to be shipping. We have the Basel Convention already. Now plastics has been added to the Basel Convention, which basically requires um, countries that are wanting to send these materials to other countries to get to have approval to receive them in. So it's going to be much more difficult to dump our material in countries in Asia, um, obviously not China anymore, but even countries like Vietnam and Indonesia and you know North Africa and all of these countries that have been suffering under the weight of all this waste, we're seeing more and more restrictions and bans of export that will hopefully start to solve this problem so that the global south can deal with their own problem and focus on their own problem instead of importing waste from richer countries and having, having to deal with their problem. Um, you've probably seen there's lots of videos where they're, you know, you're, they're in places like in, in um, parts of uh, Central East Asia, going through a landfill and literally finding packaging that comes from America, from Canada, from Germany. You know, what is it doing there? It shouldn't be there. It should be managed in the very countries that it's coming from themselves and it should be recirculated right back into for example new packaging i'm glad to hear it and i'm glad that legislation is is playing a part there in your opinion clarissa how can post-covid recovery support the move towards the circular economy and what can asia do to move away from current waste cycles 
So the post-COVID recovery is an obvious opportunity to drive circular economy. We know that increasing circularity in a country or in a region equals more jobs because the circular economy is about shifting our capital investments away from virgin extraction and natural resources to people and labor and an investment in a system that is designed to collect, to sort, and to re-inject those materials back into the economy. So it's a very positive economic um, activity opportunity. Managing reusable or recyclable resources, we should be, we should be treating them as assets, material assets. And the more we can manage those assets, it just means more jobs, and it also means better jobs. A job that is in the business of managing an asset, like a recyclable product or a reusable product and having it reused, collected, washed, redistributed, those jobs are much better than the jobs that are in the current linear model where you have you know, people working at a landfill or people working in a mining site. Wouldn't it be better for those jobs to be upscaled into jobs that involve technology and logistics and um, sorting and handling than jobs that are part of that linear economy. So this is a tremendous opportunity and every government around the world should realize that it's up to them to set the standard for a new circular economy because we have seen tremendous innovation. I have seen countries introduce legislation and literally within two years seeing a dramatic difference in terms of circularity. It starts with government and companies will follow. Companies will innovate accordingly because they're going to have to. What about the other block of consumption habits? Will resorting to a circular economy allow us to maintain the consumption habits that we've all taken part in and that have essentially created a waste crisis. And shouldn't we be focusing on waste reduction and less consumption? I mean, what about the elimination of single-use plastics, for instance? Well, obviously, yes. Um, we need to think about circular economy and reduction and prevention in terms of prevention. Do we need it in the first place? Uh, which often could incorporate reuse but also recycling. I think the way I see it is all products and packaging, this sort of linear economy, they are created to answer and address a need that we have, that people have. And it's not necessarily about saying to people, you can no longer, for example, let's use a water bottle. That's a classic example of something that is, is a new thing that we're now doing. We weren't doing this 20 years ago, walking around with plastic water in our bag everywhere we go. And thereby, if we don't have a recycling bin, just tossing it in the garbage. And that's why we have a huge plastic bottle problem all over the world. It's really about the utility. Well, what is it that people want? It's not that people want a plastic bottle in their purse, a single use plastic bottle in their purse. They just wanna have the ability to have a refreshment nearby water, nearby when they need it. So the problem isn't that we wanna have water, the problem is how we are 
effectively managing that utility, the utility of needing water. And companies have responded because there have been no regulations preventing them from putting single-use plastics on the market. But we can still respond to the desire of the consumer that wants to carry around water, but we can put it in a bottle that has a deposit on it where more than 90% are gonna be returned and turned back into new bottles. That's a reality. So we haven't ultimately affected a consumer's, a consumer's ability to have that water nearby, but we've just changed the way in which that water bottle is being managed. And we need to look at it from that perspective. How can we provide the consumer with what they want, but in a way that has zero waste? And that is the creative challenge that we're faced with. And I gave you the example of bottled water or any beverages. We have a solution for that. It's called deposit return. That's an easy one. That's a, what, what I would call a low hanging fruit. And that's why governments all over Europe are introducing deposit return systems. Why? Because the European government has now mandated a 90% target for plastic beverage bottles. And therefore, governments are looking at those solutions that work and they're introducing deposit return systems for beverage containers all across Europe. But the same way of thinking can go for a lot of other products out there. When we think about, for example, takeaway packaging, which is a real problem also in Asia, single use takeaway packaging, home delivery, it's really blown up during COVID because everybody's getting you know, food delivered at home. There's absolutely no reason why we cannot have the same system in place, but those single use packaging units, the bowls, the coffee cups, the salad bowls, et cetera, can't be in reusable packaging where you have a company that is now in the business of not only producing high quality, long lasting, attractive, pretty, um, utility, easy to use packaging, but it's reusable and it's part of a circular system where you're using new technology, unique coding, um, and the ability to get that packaging back to wash that packaging and to redistribute it out to takeaway restaurants, for example. We're already starting to see those models rolling out in Europe, where, for example, we have coffee cup programs and we have um, other takeaway food packaging programs where the packaging is being reused, but we can scale that up. And in fact, especially in a lot of the Asian countries where you have those large populations, it's a and they're more dense in terms of cities, this is the perfect place to scale up those reusable models. But it requires a slight change of thinking and it requires a thinking that basically says, this can have zero, this cannot have any waste. We need to be able to provide what the customer's needing in a way that has zero waste. And that is the challenge, but we're already seeing that challenge being met. So we have to keep going with it. It requires thinking around collecting, how we collect, how we sort, how we redistribute. Yeah, I completely agree with you that from government to industry to consumer is sort of the, the habit breaking pattern that we need. And, and you definitely need that legislation in place to enable that to start. 
I want to think about the the processing of recycling, Clarissa. So tell me about the energy it takes to recycle. What is the carbon footprint of the recycling industry given the transportation, shipping and processing of materials like metal and plastic? Yeah, so when we look at recycling um, those materials, there's obviously an energy, uh, a net energy burden. Um, let's say there's an environmental impact, of course, of having to, as you said, transport, ship, process, processing requires sorting equipment, uh, washing, grinding, extruding, etc. Or metals requires putting it in a smelter and applying a lot of heat to remelt it, etc. Um, those all have an energy component and they have a small pollution component. But when we look at the impacts of recycling, we of course have to compare it with the alternative, which would be single use, where you have a single use, so you're disposing of it and there's energy associated with the disposal actions, not a lot, but some. But what you really need to look at is those replacement costs. So if you're not recycling, you're actually having to replace the materials with virgin metal or virgin plastic. And those, the energy to extract virgin material and produce virgin material is far, far, far greater than recycling. Let me give you an example. When it comes to aluminum as an example, recycling is only 5% of the energy to recycle in an aluminum can uh, than if you were to make a virgin can. Similarly with plastic, I don't have the actual um, percentage, but it's, it's at least half. So all materials, glass, plastic, metal, papers, all have an energy uh, requirement to recycle, but it is significantly smaller than it would be if you were um, extracting virgin material and putting virgin materials on the market. So it's not fair to say that, you know, recycling is too energy intensive. Of course it has energy, but that's needed and there's a little bit of pollution, but it's far, far more efficient to recycle something than it is to not recycle something. Is it more efficient to reuse something? Most of the time, yes, it is if it's done properly, but circular economy is a combination of prevention, redesign, uh, remanufacturing, recycling, reusing, rethinking. So it's really a combination of everything. Thank you, Clarissa. The aluminium can percentage that you gave there is pretty stark. And then well, and, and just if I could just say on the aluminum yeah. can, um, you know, you'll, you'll see more recently um, the aluminum industry, I, I would say as a whole, the, um, the, the, those companies that smelt aluminum and those companies that roll aluminum into packaging are all realizing that they know this and they've known it for years and they don't want to consume a lot of energy either as a company. You know, there's a lot of pressure on global emission reduction. So they too want to use less energy and they are now some of the leading voices around legislating targets and making sure that we can recover as much aluminum and how do we create systems where we can get that aluminum back you know deposit return is a perfect example the aluminum industry for years was 
opposing deposit return for the questionable you know, costs that were, were going to be incurred from deposits. But now they fully recognize the benefit of getting their cans back and being able to melt them and re-roll them with only 5% of the energy. So we're really starting to see all the big companies also embracing this new way of managing their material assets because they're seeing that it really does require a significant amount of less energy. Indeed. And I think if businesses are starting to realize that resources are finite and it makes good business sense as well as sense for our people and our planet to reuse, recycle, and to prevent that virgin resource management cost in the beginning, then that's, that's definitely a good thing. In an era when solving waste management issues as well as the climate crisis is as urgent as it is now, Clarissa, what sort of timeframes do you envisage for a circular economy to start taking hold and really making that positive impact towards reducing pressure on landfills and the environment? Well, I mean, if governments start now, uh, you could start to see changes happen very quickly. And I'll give you an example. In Europe, uh, a set of single-use items have been banned, legislatively banned from the European market. Mm -hmm. And those targets are meant to start in 2021. So we're already going to start to see this year alone, less of those products on the market and in some countries, you just won't see them on the shelves anymore. Um, we have recycling targets in Europe that are set for 2025. So that's less than five years away and longer term targets for 2029. So you're looking at about eight, nine years away. Um, ultimately, we have some huge targets by 2035. So it's about 14 years away. So we can, if governments need to start now, there is no, there should be no more delay. There is absolutely no reason to delay any legislation around recycling targets, extended producer responsibility, um, bans, uh, landfill reduction targets, prevention targets, reuse targets. We need to start right now. And we could see the impact of those targets in as little as two years to as much as 10 12, 13, 14 years. And I'll just give you an example. Um, in Lithuania, Lithuania introduced a deposit return program to try to deal with the problem they had with single-use packaging uh, beverage containers. And they were, uh, they were getting about 30% of the beverage containers back for recycling. Within two years of introducing a good piece of legislation, forcing producers to take responsibility and meet binding targets, they got to 90% collection and recycling of high quality closed loop recycling within two years. Wow. Two, two years. So that is unbelievable. And why did that happen? The government put in good legislation. They worked with the industry to make sure it was a level playing field and everybody was impacted. The industry formed a coalition. They came together. They created a system together for the country that worked with the, um, the cultural needs of the society in that country. And within two years, they were able to exceed the government target of I can't remember what it was, but they, they hit more than 90%. So um, 
if you have good foundational legislation, if you bring the right people to the table, if you um, call on the, techno the technology innovators around the world to support your efforts, recycling technology, sorting technology, um, logistics technology, optimization technology, reuse technology. These companies exist. They are dying to do business all over the world. We need to tap into these innovators and we could see change really, really fast. Fantastic. Clarissa, I wish we had more time for more questions, but we're all out for today. I really appreciate your time and I really appreciate your expertise on this. Well, it was a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you. For more coverage on these issues and more, check out our website, www.eco-business.com and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud or Spotify. The podcast editor for today is Benjamin Wong. I'm Anna Moore. Thank you for tuning in.